Well, if you will, go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. Uh, we are nearing the end of our study of the miracles of Jesus through the lens of Matthew. Earlier this year, we, we went through and studied the miracles of Jesus through John. Uh, but we are uh, quickly approaching the last and final miracle, which of course was the biggest, and that was raising oneself from the dead. Matthew 17, we want to read verses 24 to 27. You'll find it in your pew Bibles, page 867. 867. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. The evangelist Matthew writes on their inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not, the, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shackle. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's go learn prayer. Our Father asks, as always, that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind, that we would understand it, our eyes, that we would see your glory, our ears, that we would hear, hear and heed your word, our mouth, that we would speak the truth of the gospel, beginning with ourselves, to one another in love and to this lost and dying world. May you open our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. May you be seated. Now, granted, the, the merits of prohibition of the 20th century can be a matter of debate, but most historians agree that prohibition contributed to the rise of the early 20th century, what we call gangsters. These are the, the, the guys who were robbing banks, uh, selling illegal liquor, and everything else. And the end of their terrors of each of them, particularly the more famous ones, came in a variety of ways. For example, uh, Bonnie and Clyde, who may be the first of the modern celebrity. After all, they, when their pictures were released, uh, they, they, they took on a real uh, sympathy because of their celebrity status, traveling around uh, the country, covering great ground in their in their Ford. Nevertheless, Bonnie and Clyde died whenever federal agents ambushed them, littering them with bullets. Sort of a, I don't think you could get away with that now. John Dillinger was killed by federal agents following yet another bank robbery attempts. But perhaps most surprising was the end of Al Capone. Not his death, but how his reign of terror came to an end. He wasn't arrested by the federal agents because of his long laundry list of, of crimes and sins and violence. He was arrested for tax evasion. The only way the federal government could keep him in prison to prove their case was to arrest him because he hadn't paid his taxes. I think the lesson there is quite clear. Whether it's the FBI or the IRS knocking on your door, 
you are going down, right? <laughs> you're, you're going down, right? I mean, that's what the federal government said to Al Capone. It says, yes, it's tax evasion, but we got to give him the maximum because we're really arresting him for all these other crimes that we would struggle to, to prove the case. Here, what you have is a tax collector coming, knocking on Jesus' front door, saying, hey, where's the taxes? Or if this were today, he would get a friendly letter in the mail saying that his taxes were due. Let's start in verses 24 and 25. We actually see the reference to, to the tax there, that Jesus and his disciples are back in Capernaum. Uh, this geographical note is important to us as readers. This is as close as Jesus has to a home base. And it is where Peter lives. And Peter lives, of course, with his wife and family and his mother-in-law. It's probably why he's gone all the time. And, and uh, they have been gone a long time. And because of that, they are behind on paying their taxes. So once the tax man sees that the light is on, on the front porch at night, he comes knocking on the door. Now, granted, the IRS is impatient towards us today, right? Uh, they don't care if you've been traveling the world. If you ain't paid your taxes, by the way, you have, what, a little over two weeks to get that in. Um, uh, if you haven't paid your taxes, they will hunt you down and they will find you, right? That's the lesson from Al Capone. The publicans presented here, on the other hand, were quite impatient, but I can only assume that with their patience came interest, right? I remember several years ago, uh, my wife and I were able to uh, pay a little extra on our student loans one month. It was a real focus of us to pay off our student loans. And uh, I got a bill in the mail the next month. It said, we owe for the month zero dollars. That was cool. So I called them up and says, I think there's a typo. We have for months and years paid X amount of dollars on this bill. How is it that we owe zero dollars? They said, well, because you pay, you've paid enough extra over the last few months that it's come up that you, you don't owe us anything this month. I said, oh, that's really nice. But let me ask you, are you still charging me interest on this month? Yes. Then you will be getting a check in the mail, right? <laughs> I mean, they're going to get their interest in, right? What's interesting, isn't it, that Peter is asked, not Jesus, by the tax collector, if, uh, if they pay their taxes. And this is likely because not only is Peter the homeowner, if we can use that term, but because he is behind on his taxes. Now, to note, this is not a tax they would pay to Rome. This is an additional tax that would go to the temple. The Mosaic law commanded all men, 20 years and up, uh, to uh, pay a certain amount for the maintenance of the tabernacle, the support of its priest, and so on and so forth. Today, we would call that maybe a tithe, but, but a, a compulsory tithe, you could call a tax, right? That's essentially what, what it was, given that, that the state and the religion of Judaism were very much merged. The Jews at this time had to pay a lot in civil and religious taxes. The Romans had a very draconian tax system. We meet them all the time. And so they would have a high tax rate. Added on top of that, tax collectors, as you know from Zacchaeus and Matthew and others, would charge extra so that they can pocket money from you. So long as Rome got their taxes, they didn't care how those taxes and how much more taxes were, were taken. The Jews, on top of what the Romans did, uh, needed this sort of tax to keep up with Again, the temple, the priest, and anything else that Herod thought was necessary for him to do. That would be like building Masada, renovating the temple, and everything else that Herod found as a good pet project. And what's interesting is that Peter speaks for Jesus here. 
When asked, does your master still pay the tax? His answer is yes. He, he doesn't debate it. He doesn't overlook it. He, he, just, he just says yes. They are delinquent due to their absence of travel. But yes, uh, we will get you a check in the mail. That's basically what he says there. So the text moves from the tax there at the beginning to the talk between Jesus and his disciples, verses 25 and 26. And the language suggests that Jesus spoke to people knowing that the, the, the conversation had, had just transpired. That is that Jesus here demonstrates he is omniscient. That is, he knows everything. The conversation between the tax man and Peter, but then Jesus brings it up because he's aware of the conversation. And so what Jesus asks a pretty straightforward question. From whom do kings extract taxes from? Their sons or from their citizens? It's an odd question for you and I, but it would not have been an odd question in the ancient world. That is, do kings, when they levy a tax, do they tax their children or do they only tax citizens of their kingdom? Or conquered foes? Is it strangers or is it sons? Well, Peter says it there very straightforward in verse 26, uh, from others, right? And that is that kings tax citizens. They, ta they tax conquered foe. They tax other people. And, and the reason for that is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Because if, you, if the king taxes his son, well, where is his son getting his income? From taxes, so he would be taxing taxes. Now, that does not stop the government now from doing that. But in the ancient world, that would not have been the normal practice. In fact, you may find this interesting. It was not until 1992, due to growing unpopularity, that the Queen of England agreed to start paying her taxes. All the centuries before that, the king didn't pay taxes. He collected taxes. He's the tax man, the ultimate tax man. But given that... Only citizens and, and other strangers are taxed. The sons, Jesus says there in verse 26, are exempt. In other words, the sons of the king are free. Again, why would he tax his son, whom he will give the kingdom? Why would he tax taxes? And this leads finally, verse 27, to the trip. However, not to give offense to them, Jesus states... Go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, the miracle is pretty straightforward. Go fishing, and from that will come the means of paying taxes. And the purpose of it is given by Jesus as well. He does this so that he and Peter do not offend the tax man. So he tells this fisherman, remember Peter is a fisherman by trade, go out to the sea, cast a line, and you will catch a fish. Now you will notice something is missing here. Bait. Now, I don't want to brag, but I tried this once. It was all by accident. On, on the day I graduated high school, uh, my, my wife, then girlfriend, and I, we, 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 we had a few hours to spare, and I wanted to go fishing, 
right? This is my last day as a high school student. We're going to have a long night due to project graduation and church next morning. So let's go fishing. It was a beautiful day. And uh, uh, we got out there and we had our we had our poles and everything to go. And then we got out there. I realized I had no bait whatsoever. And, and we had such a limited time to go fishing. Either we could drive all the way back and get our bait or we can just wing it. Well, not to brag again, but we didn't get a bite. I mean, it was, it was terrible, absolutely terrible, because the, the fish aren't going to bite a hook, right? That's just obviously, right? And then you have to bait the hook. Well, that's what Jesus does here. So you don't need to bait your hook, just cast it out there, and you will get a bite. And when you, when you reel that fish in, I bet it's about tall big, and I bet it's a fighter, right? And you ring it in, and, and you, you take pictures, show it off to all your buddies, you, you, you open up its mouth, rip out the hook, of course, and in there you will find the funds necessary to pay our taxes. And that is exactly what Peter does. He goes and catches a fish, and there it is, a shackle. And two people are covered, Jesus and Peter. And with this debt paid off comes freedom. We get this, right? I mentioned student loans earlier, but my wife and I finally did pay off our student loans to the glory of God. And uh, we, we went out and celebrated. I jumped up and kicked my heels, did a little dance. Oh, that's a great feeling in the world, right? We, 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 we finally are done. Now, we've, we've been married over 15 years, which means it took us 15 years to pay off our student loans. That is to say, it took us 15 years to pay off a mortgage that has no <laughs> you know, benefits other than that. But nevertheless, I'm not bitter about it at all. Uh, but, but the debt is paid off completely. So what is the teaching of this passage? What is it? I mean, let's be honest here. Of all the miracles of Jesus, this is the least impressive. Now, we all wish... It, we could go fishing without a hook. That'd save us a few dollars and some trouble, right? Getting that worm on there. And, and, and maybe your uh, wife and kids wouldn't complain so much about, you know, if you're a dad, you don't get the fish when you take the kids. You spend the entire time baiting hook and opening mouths and ripping that hook out there. And, and you know, that, that you spend your whole time doing that, you know. You're not allowed to fish when you take uh, the kids. Nevertheless, of all the miracles, this is the least impressive one. So what are we supposed to do with it? Let me offer three areas of application. The first is the application to honor Caesar. Most come to this text, whether commentators, scholars, preachers, whoever, and there's an immediate application that it just jumps off the page. It dared, we may not even need to repeat it. And that is that it mirrors Jesus' later teaching in the Gospel of Matthew to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to give to God that which is God's. That, of course, is repeated later by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 who says, Pay to all who, what is owed to them, you know, like student loans, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And there is truth in this application that is a natural point taken from this text. Jesus is asked, does he pay taxes? And he gives an unqualified yes. And here we are reminded that government is a necessary function to curb human wickedness and to secure justice. At the same time, we understand government is imperfect often in this effort. Yet, as a result of the fall, government has been given to curb human wickedness and to secure peace. 
Now, the relationship between the state and the believer can be a complicated one. If you don't believe me, read any history book on on Christianity over the last 2,000 years, and you're going to find complications and conflict between the state and the church, between Caesar and Christ. After all, we worship a Savior whom he faithfully paid his taxes to, encouraged his members to pay taxes to and be a people of peace, and yet was unjustly crucified and executed by that state. It is a complicated relationship. But Scripture, I believe, is clear on a number of points. I don't want to spend forever on this. First of all, we as Christians are called to obey all laws and pay all taxes. By the way, you have, what, a little over two weeks to get those taxes in? I feel like I should throw that out there as a friendly reminder. But we are called to obey all laws and pay all taxes, including the speed limit. Isn't that the worst? That is the worst, right? Those numbers, you know, um, I'm not a mathematician, but I'm still supposed to know what those numbers mean. But nevertheless, um, uh, we obey laws. We are not outlaws. We are not criminals. We are not evildoers. Secondly, Christians are called in relation to our neighbors in the state to promote societal peace. This is something that we oftentimes forget, especially when it comes to our online activity, isn't it? We are to promote peace. Remember that when you go out to eat following the service and that that meal isn't exactly the way you wanted it. We have a job to promote peace, to live in peace, to love our neighbor. And that includes our literal neighbors who drive us crazy. We are called to promote societal peace. Thirdly, we are called to pray for civic leaders. 1 Timothy 2 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. If I could just add a footnote there. And that is that one of the things I've learned over the last three full months with the Capitol Commission is, is that how elected officials are real people. They don't look or act or sound real when you only interact with elected officials through 24-hour news stories. They don't because you see them as people who talk about issues rather than image bearers of God. And you would be surprised the agony many have in the decisions they make, the votes they have to take, and, and, and other issues. Not to mention many travel far from family and everything else. You and I are commanded by Scripture, 1 Timothy 2, to pray or civil and civic leaders. It is hard to hate people you pray for. And that is true not just for elected officials, but for others as well. Fourthly, Christians must resist the state when necessary. Let me give you two places by which there is a place for resistance in the Bible. I'm still in these from John MacArthur, so credit to him. Number one, when Caesar demands that which Scripture prohibits... An example of this would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or when Caesar prohibits that which Scripture demands. Here would be an example of Peter and James. You must stop preaching this gospel. Whether or not we must stop preaching, um, you decide. But we must proclaim Christ. For there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. 
I see no evidence in Scripture of Christians taking up arms, revolting, or even becoming consumed with anti-seizure rhetoric, especially when we meditate more on politics than we do the gospel. Maybe that's the most important point to get from this text. Jesus shows up, he pays his taxes, and he moves on to the kingdom work. He has an obligation, but at no point do we see Jesus with his phone on one hand, browsing through Twitter and crazy Facebook, and a remote in the other, screaming at the TV because of some speech a politician gave. Rather, Jesus was going door to door to see to it that no one died without first hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. If we meditated more on the hope we have in the gospel, our anxiety levels will go down and our churches wouldn't be struggling following COVID. Because we spend more time in COVID complaining about COVID and, and, and policies than we did about the hope we have in Christ. So yes, we have responsibility towards the state. But it is not ultimate responsibility. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we are citizens of the kingdom of God. There's another application there. I'm sure I, I made most of y'all angry at me there. Secondly, we see in this text the glorious divinity of Jesus. Notice what it is that we see here. It's, it's subtle, but it is so clear. First of all, notice that, that Jesus sees what is about to happen. Verse 25, it, it, it says, um, when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? Right? So, so, so Jesus knows that this conversation has taken place. That is that he foreknows uh, as, as the omniscient Lord. That is he knows all things. So he isn't there for the conversation, but he knows about the conversation. We see this all the time, right? Whenever the paralytic is lowered down through the roof, Jesus knows the man's heart. Well, no one else can claim that except God can. Over and over again, Jesus will say, I know what it is that you're saying amongst yourselves. Let's address that. Here we see the glorious divinity of Jesus and that he is omniscient as God is omniscient and knows all things. Secondly, we see that he is the son of God. Don't forget the context of this passage is that he is the glorious one of the transfiguration beginning of chapter 17. So here he, he, he identifies as the king and as the son of the king. Finally, notice he presents himself as both the sustainer and the substitute. And that is that he is the one who can, who can order creation in such a way that when Peter throws in the unbaited hook, he knows a certain fish that has a certain shekel in his mouth will bite the hook and will be sufficient to pay for the tax. Now, you and I couldn't do that. We could have the best giggly bob you can buy at Wally World right now. And guess what? We're still not going to catch that fish. We could be told that fish can be in that pond and that all of our taxes would be taken care of and we would still not find that. Here Jesus, the creator and sustainer, brings it all together for um, he and Peter. It is here where J. Gresham mentioned in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, draws the distinction between orthodox Christianity and theological liberalism. Where he says when it comes to Christ, the difference is that for liberalism, Jesus is merely... An example of faith. Having rejected his full deity, Jesus is just an example. That is to say that, that he ought to be respected. He ought to be listened to. But you can take it or leave it. You can follow his example of how nice he was and how kind he was and how he did that or that, this or that. But at the end of the day, you can take it or leave it like you can anyone else you, you run across on Twitter. 
But for the Orthodox believer, Jesus is more than an example of faith. He is the object of our faith. He is the center of our focus, the very very thesis of our lives. Thus, we offer not just respect, but worship. And when we respond to him with repentance, belief, obedience, and submission to his lordship, here Jesus demonstrates for us, as he has in all of his miracles, he is the creator, he is the sustainer, and he is the savior. And our response to him must be that of worship and nothing less. So what Jesus offers us isn't a new way to live, but a new life. Jesus did not come to offer guidance, but salvation. Not good advice, but good news. That leads to the final point, and that is, what we see here is the good news of Jesus. It is always dangerous for us to simply moralize the text. This is what, it's what you probably grew up in Sunday school, right? Here's a story about Noah's Ark, and here's a moral of the story, right? Uh, Go for wood makes for good wood for boats. You know, whatever the moral of the story might be. But we have to be careful with that sort of, sort of approach because every passage of the Bible is about Jesus and his crucifixion. This text is no different. Remember the context. We saw this last week. Since chapter 16, Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus has pounded one event. I'm going to Jerusalem. There I will be crucified and I will be uh, uh, put in a tomb, but I will come back three days later. You can see in chapter 16, last week we saw it twice in chapter 17. Coming down from the mountain, he mentions it. At the foot of the mountain, he mentions it. Over and over again, the cross sits at the center of all that Matthew is doing. The first half of the the gospel is about the kingdom of God. Now is the foundation of the kingdom that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And what is it that he does here? To whom pay taxes? Sons or citizens? Well, it's citizens. Therefore, if you are a son, you are free. You see the gospel there? Do you see it there? It's right off the page if we would just look at it. It makes sense if we see sin as debts. Now, we can see it as slavery. Isn't that what the Exodus is all about? By the way, you're starting the book of Exodus tomorrow in your daily readings in your discipleship book. There God sets Israelites free. Here, it may be helpful to think of sin as debts. Every act of disobedience adds to our accounts. Doing good things doesn't cancel the debt. It only prevents from adding to it. Think about it. If, 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 if you only paid interest on your mortgage... Are you ever going to pay it off? No. No. So too, you may think, well, I've been a really good person. Oh, that's good. That's not how paying off debt works. There's still debt that has to be paid. And no amount of good works will cover the sin we have done. Think about it. If you were to stand before a judge and you were guilty of a crime, you said, I'm sorry, Your Honor, but don't you see? I've done a thousand other things. And the judge has said, that's good. You can do those things in jail because we have to deal with this bad thing over here. It doesn't wipe it all away, but for some reason we think that if the balance of scales are are, are tipped in my favor, God will just overlook the evil I've committed, the rebellion of my heart. That's not how the gospel works. Our debt before God is so massive there is no way we could ever pay for it. 
What we need is a redeemer, one who pays the price of our debt to set us free. And there we have Christ who pays the debt for Peter. And having paid the debt for Peter, the king of the kingdom sets us free. Here we must see ourselves as Peter here. This is assurance that no religion can offer. That is that sin has been satisfied. Grace is ours. Only the gospel offers us this sort of freedom. And understand that if your sins are paid for, covered by the blood of Jesus, then you are free. It doesn't matter what context you find yourself in. It doesn't matter what your country may be doing, what Caesar has said, the problems we're facing. You are free, rooted in Christ, not your circumstances. You are free. You are free indeed. Was it that we sang just a moment ago? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. A debt only he can pay. And it is his blood that washes us and frees us. That's the good news of the passage. That's the beauty of the gospel. Let us respond in faith. Let's pray. Our Father, as the